0: Welcome to One More Time, a wind band podcast. I'm Emmett O'Brien, and today we're going to be talking about the influence of jazz on the wind band medium. We'll be talking to Windband composers about how jazz has influenced their work, how they write, and how jazz will continue to change the composition process. Today's story was produced by Emmett O'Brien. Today, among other stories, Scott Schwartz, the director of the Sousa Archive and Center for American Music, will tell us about Sousa's relationship, or lack thereof, with jazz and his introduction of Ragtime to Europe in 1900. Well, this is Emmett from the Sousa archives for this month's episode of One More Time, a wind band podcast, and I'm currently sitting here with Scott Schwartz, the director of the Sousa archives. Well, hi, Emmett. How are you doing? Good. How are you today? All right. What are we
1: going to be talking about?
0: So this month's episode is about the influence of jazz on wind band and how jazz specifically has played a role in that medium. So from what I understand, Sousa went on tour to Europe in 1900, and in order to promote his band, he started playing a lot of different tunes that people wouldn't expect. Do you know anything about
1: Love well, or thinking it tunes to people didn't expect, and thinking of Sousa as a band leader playing jazz, yeah, that would probably get us close to the topic here of you know jazz and Sousa. I mean, quite frankly, for those familiar with Mr. Sousa, he had kind of a love-hate relationship with the medium. Um, starts ha- hating it, um, then um, when he sees opportunity, likes it and when he doesn't do quite what he had hoped with his jazz work, he eventually dislikes it. So you can, as I said, love, hate. Um, The Sousa Band um, goes to Europe, 1900, um, to perform for the Paris Exposition. It's a major World's Fair. Of course, they spend quite a bit of time also touring um, Germany um, and Great Britain and so forth. But principally, France and Germany and Holland to some degree, um, you know, playing on that 1900 tour, and you know, by 1900, Europe is fairly familiar with Sousa's music, and as some have suggested, um, with his um, piece "Washington Post," he he introduces the two-step to Europe. Um, a, you know the Washington Post March is completed July third, um, 1889. It becomes the theme song for a new dance craze in America, um, the two-step. Um, and when it's published in 1889, you know America's no longer interested in waltzes, the stayed three-step kind of thing that was very popular in Germany and Vienna. And they want to do something that gives folks an opportunity to kick up their heels. Well, we would hardly think of the Washington Post March as a jazz tune, even though it is a quick step. But in some respects, at least the two step. Now we think about ragtime. Um, you know, Sousa's, um, you know, deeply involved um, with the American scene. But you know, ragtime really begins about 1897, and it's Joplin's Maple Leaf Rag that's published in 1899 that sets American popular music on its head. It's a new dance form um, with lots of um, syncopations. Um, So it's not a a simple, boring two-step. Um, you know, ragtime is popular in America till about 1910. and by the 1920s, um, you know ragtime is falling into the background as other forms of jazz take place. Now when we think of jazz in its roots, um, we forget that the early marches, Marches by Sousa and other composers were essentially written not so much as walking tunes, but largely dancing tunes. And of course, then they move into cakewalks, another form of two-step. The concept of cakewalks um, begins essentially um, in the South during Reconstruction, when the owners of slaves, um, um, who are now free, um, invite the um, our, our our citizens of color at that time to dances, and um, the um, the individuals began to create dances to mimic and make fun of the white folks, grand hopping steps and so forth. And the goal was essentially um, who ever dancing step was the most refined and entertaining they would get a piece of cake for it so you think about this the white folks didn't know that the black folks were making fun of their dances and so they eventually took on the term cakewalk syncopated patterns which eventually move into ragtime um, and then one and two step dances and eventually foxtrots so you'll notice the theme here is dance music with motion, okay, and not just a regular motion, a syncopation motion, and so essentially, by 1890, um, ragtime is is taking and in, in making itself known, and um, by 1900, um, ragtime, um, rag rhythms are quite popular, and Europe wants to know more about this. Um, they're still stuck sort of in the waltz mode, and so when Sousa comes to Europe in 1900, he noticed that the taste of Europeans are not quite as they were the previous time he, he went to Europe, um, and so he begins to play rag tunes, or, or creates arrangements of those pieces. Um, one in particular is Abe Holtzman's Bunch of Blackberries, um, which, when you hear the music to that piece, it has all the rhythmic flavor and character of a Joplin tune. And so he arranges this and many more tunes like this, much to the pleasure of um, Europeans. And I should should say the French in Paris really liked the rag tunes. The folks in Germany were still stuck in the Viennese waltz mode and military marches and didn't take a particularly pronounced liking to the rag tunes, so the Sousa band didn't play rag tunes as much in Germany as they did in France and Holland. And so um, we, we see this opportunity where Sousa is using the um, community's interest um, in a new dance form as a way to sell tickets so that they'll fill seats. Did Mr. Sousa love Ragtime? I don't think so. Quite frankly, it was just to sell tickets to concerts. But nevertheless, he arranged peaches like bunches of blackberries to help sell the band and make the band a memorable force that people would come back on a daily basis to hear them play. So in some respects, did he introduce ragtime to um, Europe? Yes, maybe there were other musicians performing there but nevertheless he took full advantage of their tastes in this new dance form and he jumped on the bandwagon largely to use it as a vehicle to sell the band in its performances. So yes and no. Um, so you might say he's taking a liking to it because it helps sell tickets. Quite frankly that makes him a happy man.
0: So, as you were saying, Sousa would often arrange things that were to the liking of his audiences so that he could sell tickets. But as we know, jazz continued to develop outside of the ragtime and cakewalk mediums. Mm-hmm. Would you say there's a line in which Sousa decided this is not the music I would want to write anymore?
1: Well, you know, that that's an interesting question. Um, you know, there are a lot of issues um, with jazz performance. You have to realize that Early jazz is, is largely a, a musical form that does not require the musicians to read music. All right, Anyone who's got a good ear and understands the form and can play their instrument well can play jazz. Right? They aren't schooled. They aren't trained as musicians. <coughs> so in some respects, Sousa takes a dislike to the jazz forms because anybody can play it. So you have uncultured performers making more money than cultured ones playing a a musical form that, quite frankly, doesn't require a schooled technique. And so... You find this kind of dichotomy. 1900, he's interested in ragtime because he can arrange pieces. His train, well-studied musicians can play it well, much to the, the favor of the audiences, which sells tickets. But as a musical form, he finds it quite uncultured, and so you have this kind of push back and forth between his love and his hate for the music. Now, we we really you know, need to talk about um, his um, his official jazz work, um, Jazz America, um, which was. Um, written in 1925 and played in 1925, um, he writes the piece and um, an experimental piece. I mean, in 1924, he creates a piece called Limehouse Blues. Its official title was An Application of Jazz Tunes. Now, I confess... If I were sitting in a concert and I saw a program title, Application of Jazz Tunes as a title, I'm not going to get real excited about it. It sounds like it's going to be an educational piece and kind of boring. You know, Give me an old-fashioned piece, Stars and Stripes. I, that, that I know. I want that. It's very simple, okay? Well, he plays the Limehouse Blues um, as a medley, as a medley of syncopated melodies at Willow Grove between June 29th and September 14th, 1924, test drive his concept of jazz, refined jazz played by wing bands. And it was fairly successful, so he thinks, okay, I can do this. And for the next year, he advertises across numerous newspapers, the jazz is going to be refined under the baton and skillful musical melodies of John Philip Sousa. And he completes Jazz America on June 9th, 1925. And the medley is now not just eight minutes of music, it's a medley of over 30 minutes of music. All right? Anybody who Recognizes 1920s jazz, 1920s jazz, even under Paul Whiteman's hand, didn't go on for 30 minutes. As I said, it was a medley of syncopated tunes. All right. Nevertheless, he writes and the band plays Jazz America 1925. Now, just kind of frame this a bit for those in our listening audience. 1920s jazz, okay. These are the people making a name for themselves, or just starting to make a name for themselves King Oliver, Louis Armstrong, Bix Beiderbecke, Jelly Roll Morton, Paul Whiteman, um, Duke Ellington, Earl Father Hines, and Kid Ory. These are just a handful of names of what we recognize today as the supermen of 1920s jazz and afterward. Okay? So we've got them on the forefront of new jazz forms. And then we have John Philip Sousa composing music that essentially gets its kickstart in the 1890s. So we have a generational gap in terms of musical tastes, all right? So he writes Jazz America at a time when you've got other jazz musicians putting out tunes that are, you know, kind of taking the world by storm. Now, some would ask, why the hell would Souza want to get into jazz or more racy kinds of kick walks in 1924. Well, there's an interesting thing. Leopold Stokowski, who's conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra in 1924, publicly embraces what jazz is doing as a popular musical form that's transitioning American tastes to a new generation. This is Stokowski, the very famous conductor conducting the Philadelphia Symphony, of which Souza was well aware of. So you got Stokowski, high art conductor, musician, saying jazz is something we should be thinking about. It is the, the, the form that is America's stamp on the world. And then Sousa kind of catches wind of this and says, whoa, wait a minute, okay. Maybe I should consider this whole concept of jazz a little more seriously. So it takes a white guy conducting a symphony orchestra to convince Sousa to consider jazz as a true art form. Now to kind of frame the 20s again, 1920, Paul Whiteman records his first famous recording, Whispering in New York. Takes the world by storm. 1921, Jack Teagarden cuts his first two recordings on trombone, and his style of performance captures everybody's imagination. He is now at the top. 1922, Duke Ellington leaves Washington, D.C., moves to New York, and plays in the Cotton Club, and everybody knows what that story led to. 1923, J.P. Johnson, stride pianist, composes the Charleston. That's the tune of which the dance grows from. Okay, 1924, Fletcher Henderson and Coleman Hawkins land on the map for great music. Coleman Hawkins joins the Ellington band and essentially becomes the core of that Ellington sax sound. Fletcher Henderson's band gets Louis Armstrong very hot. That's 1924. So you got Sousa, Fletcher Henderson, Ellington, all right? We've got Chicago jazz. We've got New York jazz, and Sousa is stationed in jazz. You know these guys are in his hometown, and they're making waves. Sousa's band is not. 1925, two Broadway hits, T for Two and No No Nanette, incorporate elements of jazz into the performance. Take the entire country by storm. Okay, 1926, Kid Ory's Muskrat Ramble, newly composed, very popular. 1928, Basin Street Blues is introduced by Louis Armstrong, an ending of Ellington's Creole Love Call, a jazz ballad. So now jazz is going from ragtime to ballads. Sousa is kind of sitting on the sidelines here. The rest of the world is kind of missing the boat. Sousa is old music. And by 1929, Fats Waller does Ain't Misbehaving" and Honeysuckle Rose. Jazz standards by this time. These are the tunes that basically the reviewers are measuring Sousa's Jazz America by. And needless to say, the reviews were not so hotsi totsy for Mr. Sousa. You know, he's he's working in a different realm of jazz. <laughs>
0: For this edition of Two Minute Rehearsal Techniques, we welcome Courtney Snyder, the Associate Director of Bands and Assistant Professor of Conducting at the University of Michigan. Before arriving at Michigan, Dr. Snyder served as the Assistant Director of Bands and Director of Athletic Bands at the University of Nebraska Omaha. Snyder has been published in many journals including Music Educators Journal, The Instrumentalist, and The Woman Conductor.
2: Hello. So I'll be talking today about rehearsing big picture musical concepts. And what I mean by that is really thinking about what is the feel of the music and how the feel um, impacts both how I move as a conductor, but also how I listen to the ensemble and how the students are um, thinking about their performance. So first is when a group isn't producing the kind of sound and the the music isn't matching the feel that I want, first thing that I'll do is I'll stop and, and ask the students, What is this music communicating? Um, How does this music make you feel? What do you think the composer is trying to emote here and trying to create um, in terms of the feeling? And if they don't come up with immediate answers or their answers are too generic, um, they might say, well, it feels happy or it feels sad, which isn't really specific enough. I'll continue to press them to kind of come up with more specific ideas. Let's get more specific. What kind of happiness is this communicating? Is it maybe more victorious or more elated? Or is it just, you know, bubbly or exuberant? Um, Give them options maybe along the way and let them discover to get more specific over time. And then once we're pretty much in agreement with related to how this music should feel and what kind of qualities and emotions that we're trying to depict Ask deeper questions now to how they should move the air. Um, How should they articulate? What kind of articulation should they be thinking about? How should they be listening or what should they be listening for? How should they move their air? Um, How should this phrase be shaped? Get them to make those um, concepts um, and have those specific things determined now while they're learning the parts as opposed to trying to put it in the last minute. Um, I think other ways to be able to rehearse this is if the line isn't moving the way that it should, obviously let go of the beat and just show them exactly how this line should be shaped. But if they aren't able to match what you're showing them, have them actually put their instruments down move their arms the way you are, move their hands, place those notes where they should while they sing their parts. And then still, if it's not quite happening, you can even have them lean into the arrivals and then again, put it back on the instruments while you're showing them that visually. Um, Another element is related to articulation. Um, You know, articulation impacts style and style impacts the feel. So if they aren't articulating the way that they need to, you can have them experiment with what kind of consonant should we be using to articulate here a t or a d Um, how should we be touching the air as it moves through our horns Um, if they still aren't able to grasp that you can always have them put down their instruments again and just have them touch their hand the palm of their hand with the kind of articulation that they should they should be articulating and have them do that while they articulate as well and you can again put it back on the instruments maybe on a generic note and then ultimately back with the musical line. So those I think are two ways in particular to get the students to move, to make it match more of the style and the feel that you want to accomplish with this piece.
0: Today's episode explores the relationship between jazz and the wind band medium. We'll be exploring the effect of jazz and harmony on wind band composition, how composers find resources to write in this style, and how composers wish for this music to be taught to the ensembles who perform their music. A quick disclaimer for this episode jazz is a very large umbrella term that includes many influences, cultures, and styles. Today, we welcome Dr. Alan Gillland, Joshua Hobbs, and Dr. Jennifer Beller. Today's episode explores the relationship between jazz and the wind band medium. We'll be exploring the effect of jazz rhythm and harmony on wind band composition, how composers find resources to write in this style, and how composers wish for this music to be taught to the ensembles who perform it. For today's episode, we'll be welcoming Dr. Alan Gilliland, professor of composition at McEwen University, Dr. Jennifer Beller, professor of composition at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and Joshua Hobbs, a composer and director of bands at a high school near Tampa, Florida. The first part of the story focuses on the influence of jazz on these composers' works. Specifically, we asked them to consider how jazz has influenced the rhythms and harmonies they write, how it influences their thinking when it comes to composition, and what types of resources they seek when writing pieces that blend jazz and wind band?
3: I, it,
0: it's always
3: there. I, I got to tell you, like it, like I mean, like I, just before I talk to you here, I'm I'm taking a piece that I wrote last year, uh, which is a flute concerto that I wrote for flute and big band. Which is, I can't think of a worse combination of instruments than flute and big band, but it was for. If you if you think about it, if, if any ensemble could crush any instrument, it would be flute against big band. But uh, but I wrote it for this guy named James Walker. I don't I don't know if you know him, but he teaches at uh, USC uh, for about twenty five years. He was the first call flute player in the in the la studios but he was also a jazz player he had, had a fusion group as well so he's a guy who actually knows how to improvise as well as, as play that and so the piece i the piece i'm uh, i was just working on before i talked to you is a reorchestration of the piece i wrote last year and i'm writing it for the usc band and for for jim to play in april and uh you know i was just reflecting on on the conversation we're going to have and just realized that you know when i approached that piece you know i was doing all sorts uh i mean i'm like I, the first movement's kind of in a Brazilian style and the middle movement's in a kind of an East Indian style and he plays alto flute and then the last movement's in a Celtic style. And I'm just, like, everything I do, I think I'm, I'm constantly looking around me at maybe not swing jazz, but just all the different styles that influence jazz and bringing them into my writing. And, and particularly in this piece for Jim, again, places for him to literally have solo sections with slashes it and stuff. So so I, I see it always that way, and and I'm, I'm actually working on this piece right now. It's a double concerto. I've There's a group in, in Edmonton called the Alberta Baroque Ensemble, and, and what they do is obviously play music of the Baroque period, but for the last, well, every five years they commissioned me a piece to write for their anniversary. And so I'm working on one right now that's a double concerto for flute and violin, and what I've decided to do is is basically make it a contrafact. So, so contrafact is this thing where is, is the kind of fancy word for basically writing your own melody on somebody else's chord changes. Uh, And so, you know, obviously the blues is the best example of that. But things like I got rhythm and rhythm changes and stuff like that. So what I decided to do is write this piece and use, base it on chord changes of famous Baroque pieces and then write my own melodies on top of uh kind of recognizable broke chord changes and stuff so so and, and that piece is not going to swing it's not going to be jazz influenced or it's not going to be improvisation but again i'm bringing this kind of jazz lens to how i'm composing the piece
4: so i mean we did a lot of uh research i did a lot of research just on, on kind of the history of the blues and um and and luckily teaching jazz um, has helped as well, you know, studying scores um, and, and really just kind of diving in that way, you know, uh, Miles Davis and, and uh, you know, the, just the different um, artists that, that play jazz and, um, you know, Gershwin and studying, uh, I even quote a little bit of Rhapsody in Blue in the piece and just um, really trying to sink my teeth into it. Um, so that I wasn't going to make a complete fool of myself um, when I wrote the piece um, but uh, yeah that's that's really what I, I wanted to do I wanted to make sure that I wasn't just kind of swimming uh, in the deep end for my life I wanted to make sure that I was uh, as close to Michael Phelps as I could be when I was writing it well I mean it's it's definitely the most uh, it, it's really my my biggest jazz influence piece. I think, I think, you know, there's, there's other pieces of mine that, um, that kind of have some jazz articulations, um, that we see more in jazz. Um, but this piece, you know, is, is almost entirely founded on, the, on, on the blues scale and the different big band feels, uh, you know, shout choruses and, and, uh, Dixieland and, um, things of that nature. So, yeah, this was, um, was very different in that sense. Um, just the tone of the piece, the uh, extended techniques that are used um, are are kind of unique to for this piece. You know, ghost notes and uh, plunger and, and, and things like that um, are, are something that in this piece I use way more uh, that are way more prevalent than they are in my other music. I think uh, as a composer, I learn from, from each piece that I write, you know, you always are going to take things away of of things that were successful or things that you might, um, reorchestrate or, um, you know, however the case may be, um, maybe you would change a tempo or something like that. So I think, um, you know, those kinds of things, you're always, you're constantly learning lessons of, 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 what you can do, um, at your disposal when you're working with with a band like this, um, I think in in general, though, I think um, you know you 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 take away even I, I think in, in using extended techniques like this. Whereas maybe they are mostly common in jazz. Uh, I think one thing that's really exciting about the wind ensemble medium as a whole is you're seeing more and more composers get away from that traditional band sound um and i think you know these techniques though they might be foreign initially uh can lend themselves in a variety of styles and in doing so it kind of just keeps the whole band scene fresh and exciting so yeah i think there's there's a lot that can be taken away from from this uh for myself uh
5: at the very beginning yes i listened to a lot of um well, I mean, I listened to a whole, a whole variety of jazz and, and Dave gave me a huge listening list. Um, I listened to a lot of Maria Schneider's works. So her album... Um, I can't remember the name of the album, but it's the uh, Evanescence. Um, it was Evanescence. So I listened to her album Evanescence at the very beginning, which was hugely inspiring to me. And there's this one tr- track or one piece of hers called Wrigley. Um and so listening to that and then also listening to her piece pretty road and then various other ones that she's written um that was really influential to me at the very beginning when i started writing and i also enjoyed listening to like john hollenbeck um i listened to a lot of uh, of course i listened to tons of coltrane um and then uh thelonious monk and so just i was just constantly listening which you know helped inspire me but You know, at the end of the day, it's always scary when you're writing for the first time for a new ensemble like instrumentation. And so I decided I'm like, okay, you know what? I love listening to all this music, but I'm going to have to start this piece and I'm just going to dive in and see what happens.
0: The next part of today's story focuses on how these composers choose to notate their works in this medium. Notation can play a large role in how ensembles choose to perform these pieces when it comes to harmony, melody, rhythm, phrasing, and more. We asked each composer to consider how their notation for these types of works is similar or different from the other compositions they have written.
4: play in big band and jazz band, so there's a learning curve with them. um, As for the other extended techniques, I mean, in terms of the notation of it, I think for the most part, it's it's pretty you know uh, standard in how I would notate it, without everybody else notates it. Maybe scoops here and there, like in the Dixieland section, might be a little bit unique. But as for like the the growling and the plunger and the flutter tongue and stuff like that, uh, it's not um, completely um, uncommon to, to see those kinds of things written in in other wind ensemble pieces.
5: At first, when I started writing, I thought. That it had to be different. And then I realized it doesn't have to be different at all because my whole approach, I realized it, like my my goal from all these compositions that I write, especially those that um, combine the jazz combo with the band, I don't want to be like, oh, here's the written out stuff. And then it's very obvious where the improvisation is. And so I want my ideas to flow and to be more organic where oftentimes um a lot of what i'm writing anyways is more like a written out improvisation like many of my lines and so like even in bordello nights it's unclear at times where you know it's not completely obvious to the listener when the um written out music ends and the improvisation begins you know right here i'll repeat it again and then feature the saxophone for example um and so the structure like i think about uh, structure a lot now and then also, oh, I mean, with regard to that, especially. Um, and then harmonically, they're just. Uh, I feel like harmonically, that's definitely been a huge influence. Cause I just love all the extensions, and I, I do think very much. I think the more that I've written for jazz, I, I feel like a lot, a lot of that has been influenced by um, what I've been listening to. You know, that's a good question. The first score. And then I wrote full, 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 score. I actually used the, the jazz ink pen, um, font that you usually see in, in jazz, but then I realized, you know what? You don't have to show that you, you can just keep it with the same sort of notation that you're used to doing, because really the jazz aspect is not coming out of necessarily the notation. It's really coming out of just the players communicating the music through, you know, my music through their improvisation. And so, i wanted to make sure that the whole experience was as efficient or as easy as possible for everybody involved and so i wanted to make sure that okay you know what i'm going to write out everyone's part playing in the ensemble and then i'm going to make sure that when the jazz players like they know when they have to improvise and i give them the chord changes and it actually um it works out quite well um yeah, I, I decided, you know, I, I just want to make sure that all the players involved, you know, if they're comfortable reading a certain um, appearance, like notation appearance, it's it's important for me that they all can read their parts and work together.
3: Uh, well, definitely improvisation shows up in my writing. It shows up in, in different ways. Like sometimes in purely kind of classically based pieces, I try to create improv- improvisational kind of Zones that people can do stuff where where they're kind of functioning like you. It might function for a, a jazz musician that's trained in impro- jazz improvisation, but I'm doing it for a classical orchestra. But I'm I'm kind of doing it in a groove and stuff. So I've done that a few times, but then definitely the Dreaming of the Masters concertos that I've written four of now. Uh, all of them have, well, I mean, they all have places where people could improvise. Some of them. Uh, It's optional, and others, depending on who I'm writing for, uh, it's literally uh, chord changes and slashes, and I've written nothing but uh, for the soloist to improvise. The other thing I do, and I I don't know, maybe this is a cheat, but I often have uh, a bass player and a drummer. And so that can cover a lot of sins, so to speak, when people are uh, maybe not swinging as hard as you would want them to. So all... Except Dreaming of the Masters, too, they all have at least a drummer and, uh, and a bass player. And often in the scores for Dreaming, I also say if you happen to have a really uh, good, uh, experienced uh, lead trumpet player at your disposal, that also helps a lot, too, to have a lead player that's kind of
0: driving the rest of the band and kind of laying down the, the articulation. For the final part of this story, we asked Mr. Hobbs to share his view on the pedagogical side of teaching this type of music. Considerations can include how educators choose to teach jazz phrasing and articulation to students, how they promote playing in a different style while maintaining good fundamentals, and how they make sure that students are emulating the sounds in an authentic manner.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's so we, we work so hard as educators to, to make sure that our kids are playing with, you know, the best possible sound and great air and, and articulating in appropriate manners. And then you you put a piece like this in front of them and in some cases you almost push the envelope a little bit in terms of what you're asking them to do. You know, we, we teach wind players to never stop a note with the tongue, uh, in and band. Um, and then even jazz band, it's, you want them to stop a, a short note with the tongue to kind of give it a little bit more of an edge. Um, and then there's, there's a couple moments in the piece where it gets a little raucous and you want them to play with kind of that pushed envelope sound. So, um, it's it's it can be it can feel a little bit contradictory to say okay now I want you to do this thing that I've always told you not to do, um, but I think to an, to an extent, a lot of the kids are excited to do that because it's you know they're 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 allowed to break the rules uh, and that's something that I always they're uh, looking forward to I think, um, and and that's uh, I think probably the biggest difference is how you play a tenuto marking, um, you know, and when you see that. Line that above or below a note in concert band, it it, you know, usually it means to play it with some length with maybe a little bit of a lean into it, Um, but it's it's um, almost a full dynamic softer, probably in jazz band. Obviously, still very long, but um, just understanding how that works and how the note that follows it is usually a staccato note or a marcado, a dit or a dot uh, in, in jazz, as we would say, just feeling that the do dit do that uh just kind of understanding how the articulations work because um you know it's one thing to be playing the notes of the style but it's 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 um it's a completely different thing to play the notes and the style uh so that was really important to me and just kind of making sure that we were all on the same page with how to articulate the piece um and uh one that i i would hope that other directors would spend time on as well in their own preparations of the piece.
0: If you want to learn more about these composers and their works, each composer also has their own website in which you can find more information. For Dr. Alan Gilland, you can visit his website, allangillland.com. Mr. Hobbs and Dr. Beller also each have websites, which you will hear about in the following audio clips.
4: Yeah. Well, I think, um, my website, uh, is a good way. You can kind of get familiar with my music. I post, uh, scores for, for everyone to check out and recordings to hear. And that's Joshua Hobbs, uh, H-O-B-B-S, uh, music.com. Um, and on that website, you can, like I said, find, uh, find my new works, my old works, recordings, scores, videos, things like that. You can also, um, get in touch with me directly. There's a contact page, um, uh, through my website and I'd love to hear from you.
5: Oh, yes. On my website. So I have everything there and I would, I would love it if anybody wanted to check out my website, um, jenniferbeller.com. And then also I, you know, I have a Facebook page and Instagram page. Um, so I'd be, you know, but I would, I, you know, definitely contact me for my website. I also have some recordings online that I have a recording um a, a second album that was re- recently released back in November called Reflections at Dusk. Uh so I have some recent music that's finally been um released which is which I'm you know excited about.
0: Thank you for joining us in this episode. Since you're already here, please rate the podcast on iTunes or like or leave a comment on the post on our website. If you enjoyed the episode, spread the word by sharing the show through Facebook, helping more people listen to and enjoy the podcast. Please consider following us on iTunes to make sure you don't miss anything if you enjoy today's show. If you want to stay current with Illinois Bands between episodes, follow us on Facebook, join us on Instagram, at Illinois Bands, or find us on Twitter, at Illinois Bands. You can always check our website for more information, www.bands.illinois.edu. The executive producer of today's show is Dr. Anthony Messina, and the staff of the podcast includes Emmett O'Brien, Jake Burroughs, James Ryan, Caitlin Nelson, and Stephen Cohn. The mixing of this episode and recording of segments is done by Marcelo Champion. Of course, none of this would be possible without the Illinois Bands faculty. Steven Peterson, Director of Bands, Linda Morehouse, Senior Associate Director of Bands, Beth Peterson, Associate Director of Bands, and Barry Hauser, Associate Director of Bands and Director of Athletic Bands. Illinois Bands is part of the School of Music at the University of Illinois and the College of Fine and Applied Arts. We would like to thank Dr. Jennifer Beller, Dr. Courtney Snyder, Mr. Joshua Hobbs, Dr. Alan Gilland, and Scott Schwartz for their contributions to this episode. We hope you'll join us next episode on One More Time.